was the best picture? The best picture? You were there when they announced it. It came after the best actress. I was in a deep depression at the time. What was the best bloody picture? You mean, what was the best picture of the year, or what did those idiots pick as the best picture of the year? Ah, yes. Michael Caine pretty much sums up my feelings about the Academy Awards and Neil Simon's California Suites. This year's Oscar nominations came out, and they were exactly what I needed to rile me up and get me to finalize my own awards for the best of 2019. 2019 was an amazing year for filmmakers pushing the envelope, and that's precisely why the 92nd Academy Award nominations were so infuriating. So little of that originality was recognized. Even most of the nominations that are being touted as daring, like 11 nominations for Joker, aren't really that daring. Sure, Joker is only the second comic book movie to get a Best Picture nomination, but it's just a comic book movie done like a Scorsese film. There's nothing really original about it. And the irony is that the Academy couldn't muster 11 nominations for Taxi Driver and King of Comedy together. And those are the Scorsese films Joker was ripping off. Oh, wait, I mean paying homage to. Those Joker nominations just feel like a safe way to pretend the Academy is not heaping accolades on another white male-centric film, which, for all its supposed edginess, is really kind of what it is. And while you can point to Cynthia Erivo's nomination for Harriet as diverse, how could the Academy pass over Lupito Nyong'o's searingly good pair of performances in Us? They think like us. They know where we are. We need to move and keep moving. They won't stop until they kill us. Or we kill them. If any actress challenged expectations and took a performance to new levels, it was Nuengo. But the Academy was more comfortable giving her an Oscar for playing a slave in 12 Years a Slave than for playing a woman who doesn't fit into any category or stereotype. This is a criminal oversight. (gasps) Similarly, the Academy should be ashamed of itself for nominating Florence Pugh for her work in Little Women, but not having the guts to single out her far more daring work in Midsummer. I guess Oscar voters don't like to be made to feel uncomfortable by a role, and they also seem a little scared by something that burns with true originality. I guess they think it's better to award Renee Zellweger for all her mugging and neurotic mannerisms and bringing Judy Garland to cardboard life. I know, the Academy did recognize the audacity of Parasite and the cleverness of Jojo Rabbit. But those feel like token crumbs left on the floor so that I can't blast the entire pack of nominations. I also know that the Oscars are industry awards, where people vote for friends and colleagues they like, and where mainstream films are more likely to be honored than indie ones. I get it. It's a business, and awards are a marketing tool. I, however, am just a person who loves movies, and I have no other allegiance except to what I think makes a good film. Movies are my life. There's no dividing line between my professional life and my personal one. I watch movies for a living, and I watch them for fun. I have friendships based on movies, and I've ended relationships over films. And when I was trying out online dating, I would have a Forrest Gump question. If they said they liked the film, it was a deal-breaker. And that's all I had to say about that. But, as with all things in the arts... Everyone's taste is different. Many people may be perfectly happy with the Oscar nominations, 
while just as many others pay them no heed because they think they're meaningless. But with the arts, it's also fun to just discuss and debate what you love and hate. I feel like right now that sense of conversation has been lost. I got kicked out of a Star Wars fan group for just daring to post a contradictory and positive opinion about The Last Jedi. I've seen this raw strength only once before. In Ben Solo. It didn't scare me enough then. It does now. So, in the spirit of highlighting films that I loved and felt were underappreciated, I offer up my Cinema Junkie Awards. If you share my taste, then we can celebrate these films together. If you never heard of some of these films, then hopefully you'll be inspired to check them out. And if you have the opposite taste to me, then maybe we can sit down over a cup of coffee and debate why we see the same film from such radically different perspectives. First, I just want to mention a pair of films that were not the best of the year, but my emotional attachment to them means I need to highlight them in some way. The Rise of Skywalker marks the end of a more than four-decade relationship I've had with Star Wars, including the dark times of the prequels and Jar Jar Binks. I liked the final film, but what I really wanted to feel was that giddy excitement I felt when the first Imperial cruiser flew over my head in 1977 as Star Wars opened. Nothing on the big screen since the original Star Wars and its sequel, The Empire Strikes Back, have won my heart over in quite the same way. But the new Mandalorian streaming show on the smaller screen gives me hope for the future of the franchise. My relationship with Marvel's Avengers hasn't been nearly as long as that with Star Wars. It's been just over a decade, and the final chapter of Avengers Endgame was also a satisfying but not entirely rousing finish. But Avengers and Star Wars will always be a part of my life and my movie loves. But the work is done. It always will be. I am inevitable. One of the most impressive things this year was a group of debuting filmmakers. The best of them was Joe Talbot, who's the last black man in San Francisco, delivered cinematic poetry. Also impressive was Maddie Diop, whose Atlantics gave us a social drama wrapped in a haunting ghost story. It marked her feature film debut and won her the distinction of being the first woman of color to receive the Grand Prix Award at Cannes. Also noteworthy were Laja Lai's Les Miserables, Melina Matsuka's Queen and Slim, Olivia Wilde's Booksmart, and Joe Pena's Arctic. Plus, there were sophomore filmmakers like Ari Aster with Midsummer, Robert Edgers with The Lighthouse, Trey Edward Schultz with Waves, and Jennifer Kent with The Nightingale, who did not falter as they moved from a successful debut to a second feature. In fact, all four continued to experiment with form and craft to deliver films that were just as fresh and original as their first ones. Now to the 10 best of 2019. After agonizing debate, I've decided on these top 10 films. But this was a tough year because there were a lot of films I loved and they were all so different that it was hard to judge them side by side. 
Plus, I feel my job as a film critic who sees hundreds of films a year is to try and shed light on films that may have come in under the radar or simply not received as much attention as they deserve. So, as much as I love The Irishman and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I'm giving my top spots to films that push the envelope more than these well-backed Hollywood movies. So here goes. Bong Joon-ho's Parasite tops my list, as it has so many others, because it manages to be so many things so effortlessly. It's horror, thriller, social commentary, black comedy, satire, and more. South Korean master Bong Joon-ho serves up a wildly entertaining, yet poignantly nuanced tale of class and social dynamics. The film surprises at every turn and delivers a riveting piece of cinema full of pathos, allegory, savagery, and unexpected hilarity. And while American films like to define the class battle with the rich as the enemy and the poor as the victim, Parasite is after something more complex and more accepting of our own shared flawed humanity. The poor are not saints, the rich are not devils, but each is shaped by circumstances not always within their control. At number two is Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life. Going to a Malick film is like going to church and having a transcendent religious experience. His quiet yet epic tale of one man's determination to follow his own moral code, no matter what the cost, is truly inspirational. Father, they call me up a cancer. We're killing innocent people. Raiding other countries, preying on the weak. Now the priests call them heroes, even saints, the soldiers, the doers. It might be that the other ones are the heroes. One of those debut filmmakers has made it to the number three slot, Joe Talbot's The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Collaborating with his friend Jimmy Fails, Talbot delivers an achingly beautiful film about a changing city and how we define home. It's also a meditation on the stories we create in order to define our place in the world and our sense of belonging. I always come back to the old house. What if it's empty? What if we just peeked inside? We could throw parties. You can put on one of your plays. We can yell. It is this house, our house. That's not your old house and that's not your neighborhood. At number four is sophomore filmmaker Robert Eggers with The Lighthouse. Eggers makes films that fall into the horror genre, the witch being his first film, yet they push the boundaries of how we define horror. There are no conventional horror beats or scares, yet his films are filled with a sense of dread created by his precise use of light, shot composition, sound design, and perfectly pitched performances. The sounds and visuals in the lighthouse give it a texture that you can almost touch, and the film feels like some artifact dug up out of an old trunk where it's been hidden for a century. What made your last keeper leave? He believed that there was some enchantment in the light. Went mad, he did. Tall tales. Walked. 
Next up at five is Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir. This falls into a category of films from last year that were, in different ways, painful to sit through. The Souvenir, Uncut Gems, and The Nightingale had characters and or situations that were not comfortable to watch. In The Souvenir, it's a woman who can't escape a bad relationship. In Uncut Gems, it's a man who can't control his gambling addiction or anything in his life. And in The Nightingale, it's a woman hell-bent on revenge because there's nothing else in her brutal, inhospitable environment that seems to give her a reason to live. In The Souvenir, Hogg displays a marvelously elliptical and seductive visual style. She often leaves the characters out of frame or only seen as a reflection. She refuses to spell things out and lets the film's exquisite visuals tell the story, if you're willing to pay attention. Plus, she's willing to challenge us with a female protagonist who's flawed and complex. I think we're all equal in that. I think we're all as real as each other. There's no competition. It doesn't matter that they're not real people. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to make a documentary. I'm, you know, I'm making now a feature. Now, are you sure? Yes, I am. I'm making a feature film. You're not trying to document some received idea of life up there on the docks. The daily grind, huddled, listening to the wireless. Well, I am, but I'm creating something new with it. Well, good. So the material is real. Those people exist. But I am designing new ones to fit what I want to make. As a direct challenge to American animated films, I offer at number six the French film I Lost My Body by Jeremy Clapin. This beautifully executed animation follows a severed hand that escapes a Paris lab and sets out to find its body. The film is surprising, poetic, and pushes expectations about not just what animation can be, but about what storytelling can do in film. Another sophomore filmmaker takes the number seven spot, Ari Aster with Midsummer. This, too, is a film about discomfort. It's a breakup film, wrapped in deceptive folk horror trappings and delivering something that is ultimately both and neither. Aster, like Eggers, is a master craftsman who combines image, sound, music, and editing to build dread in the most unexpected ways. Christian says you've got this special week planned. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. Unbelievable. Welcome and happy midsummer. School! What do you think? It's like another world. Tomorrow's a big day. Is it scary? At number eight, I owe thanks to the San Diego Asian Film Festival for showcasing the gorgeously seductive Gan B's Long Day's Journey Into Night. Despite the title, it has nothing to do with Eugene O'Neill's play, and it's not for anyone who's in a rush or needs all ambiguity cleared up by the final fade-out. This is a film that you just want to sit and luxuriate in its rapturous imagery like you might in a scented bath on a warm night. Wong Kar-wai is the only other filmmaker who makes romance so intoxicating, epic, beautiful, mysterious, unsatisfying, and sad all at once. 
A harsh contrast at number nine is Craig S. Zoller's Dragged Across Concrete. I fell in love with Zoller when I saw Bone Tomahawk at the Abattoir Horror Festival in Wales years ago. He's a bit of a conundrum, though, creating films that are almost all dialogue, yet also absolutely cinematic in their bursts of violence. He uses dialogue to vividly create and define character, so that a scene of people just talking, where nothing seems to be happening, is absolutely riveting and vital to the understanding of the story. I bristled a bit when I heard the film starred Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn, some loony conservatives off-screen, playing a pair of cops with little regard for suspects' rights on-screen. It's films like this that can stir complaints about toxic masculinity on the screen. But what those complaints sometimes miss is that just because a film serves up toxic masculinity, it doesn't mean it's celebrating it. Zoller serves it up here with some complexity. I do what I think best when I'm out there. I was that way when we were partners, and I'm still that way now. There's a reason I'm sitting behind this desk running things. And you're out there crouching on fire escapes in the cold for hours with a partner that's 20 years younger than you. Hey, Anthony's got a mouth with his own engine, but he's solid. That wasn't my point. Thanks for letting us know about this situation and any word you can have with the inspector on our behalf would be greatly appreciated. One thing before you go. I watched that video a couple of times. You threw a lot more cast iron than you needed to. And when we worked together, you weren't that rough. And? It's not healthy for you to scuff concrete as long as you have. You get results, but you're losing perspective and compassion. A couple more years out there and you're gonna be a human steamroller covered with spikes and fueled by bile. There's a lot of imbeciles out there. So in the right hands, toxic masculinity can be fascinating. Just as Zoller challenged both the Western and horror genre with Bone Tomahawk and the grindhouse formula with Brawl in Cell Block 99, he gives the heist film and police thriller a reimagining with Dragged Across Concrete. Writing like his needs to be highlighted because it's becoming something of a rarity. And finally, I give the number 10 slot to Taika Waititi's anti-hate satire, Jojo Rabbit. Plus, he delights us by playing Hitler as a young boy's imaginary friend. I know, it sounds all wrong, yet he makes it work. Poor Jojo. What's wrong, little man? Hi, Adolf. Want to tell me about that rabbit incident? What was all that about? They wanted me to kill it. I'm sorry. Don't worry about it. I couldn't care less. But now they call me a scared rabbit. Let them say whatever they want. People used to say a lot of nasty things about me. Oh, this guy's a lunatic. Oh, look at that psycho. He's going to get us all killed. I'll let you in on a little secret. The rabbit is no coward. The humble little bunny faces a dangerous world every day, hunting carrots for his family, for his country. My empire will be full of all animals. Lions, giraffes, zebras, rhinoceroses, octopuses, rhinoctopuses, even the mighty rabbit. Cigarette? Oh, no thanks, I don't smoke. Let me give you some really good advice. Be the rabbit, 
the humble bunny can outwit all of his enemies. He's brave and sneaky and strong. Be the rabbit. He walks a tricky line as he moves the film from slapstick to pathos and back again. At a time when many comedians are feeling the chill of political correctness to steer clear of potentially offensive humor, Waititi jumps into a story where a kid blowing himself up is played like a cartoon punchline. Waititi doesn't overthink his comedy. This is not the cold, crystalline satire of Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove. It's a comedy that comes at you from an emotional level and through the flawed humanity of its characters. Waititi has a gift for making us care about his characters, from the bickering vampire roommates of What We Do in the Shadows to the superheroes of the Marvel Universe. He shows us Jojo's point of view and doesn't judge him, but rather tries to show us what contributes to a young boy willingly buying into Nazi propaganda and then how those ideas can be turned by real-world experiences. Are you all right, Jojo? Who are you talking to? Nobody. I also have to throw in some honorable mentions. These films just missed my top ten and are well worth checking out. Jordan Peele's Us was a puzzle box that made the film worth viewing multiple times, and each time it got better. The Softy brothers seemed to revel in the discomfort their uncut gems so brilliantly created. Martin Scorsese revisited familiar terrain, but from an aging mobster's eyes in The Irishman. Eddie Murphy and Wesley Snipes made Dolomite Is My Name an absolute delight. Plus, it was great to see Rudy Ray Moore get some love. Trey Edward Schultz delivered a hypnotic visual poem with waves. Sam Mendes told his grandfather's war tale in a compelling digital one-shot drama in 1917. Jennifer Kent spared no brutality in The Nightingale. Olivier Assayas's nonfiction gave us a literate, adult romantic comedy as only the French can do. Quentin Tarantino once again rewrote history and delivered perhaps his sweetest valentine to the movies with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And Pedro Almodovar and Antonio Banderas partnered beautifully for Pain and Glory. My Best Actor Award goes to Antonio Banderas for Pain and Glory, with the runners-up going to Adam Sandler for making me hate him so much in uncut gems that I wanted to shoot him myself, and Eddie Murphy for bringing Rudy Ray Moore to vivid life in Dolomite Is My Name. You know what we should have? An all-girl kung fu army. Um, you know, there's, there's plenty of story opportunity, Rudy. Across this nation, inner cities are being plagued by violent crime. I, I feel the government hasn't stepped up. That's it. It's Whitey's fault. The mayor's corrupt, and there's an exorcism. God damn it. An exorcism? Yeah, you know all that who oh, mother's in hell. Um, I don't know how that fits into our urban uh, motif. Hands down, the Best Actress Award goes to Lapita Nuengo for her riveting work in Us. So once upon... There was a girl, and the girl had a shadow. It's hard to believe that the same person played the two roles in the film because she created such unique vocal and physical qualities for each character. The two were connected together. 
runners-up are Honor Swinton Byrne in The Souvenir, Iceling Franciosa in The Nightingale, Florence Pugh in Midsummer, and Aquafina in The Farewell. Such an embarrassment of riches in the female acting category, yet none of these performances were acknowledged by the Academy. The shadow realized she was being tested by God. My Supporting Actor Award goes to Willem Dafoe for creating the crustiest and most flatulent performance of the year in The Lighthouse. Runners-up are Wesley Snipes and Dolomite Is My Name for perhaps the most delightful performance of the year. Is there any angle that you could shoot this way? It looks like he's actually kicking him. There's no such angle. Roll it. God damn it. Action! And the entire supporting cast of Just Mercy, from Jamie Foxx to Rob Morgan to Tim Blake Nelson. Flawless performances in capturing flawed individuals. The Best Supporting Actress Award goes to Zhao Shuzhen as the dying mom who causes her family to engage in an elaborate charade in The Farewell. Runners-up are Divine Joy Randolph in Dolomite Is My Name and Laura Dern in Marriage Story. It's kind of hard singling her out because the character she played had zero humanity, but Dern delivered a performance that was ice and steel under a smiling, let's be friends facade. It was fantastic. For best director, I'm going with Bong Joon Ho for Parasite because he executed a complex, ever surprising film with a magician's flourish that made it all look so effortless and amazing. But kudos to a mix of veterans and newcomers that had me staring up at the screen in awe, from experienced master Terrence Malick to sophomore filmmakers Robert Edgers and Ari Aster to truly defiant female directors Joanna Hogg and Jennifer Kent to the ever-challenging and rewarding Safdie brothers. There were a lot of good scripts out there, but I want to single out Craig S. Zoller for Dragged Across Concrete and the Egger brothers for The Lighthouse. I also need to highlight a category that I only fully came to appreciate this year, that of film colorist. I always knew that there were people in the labs who timed the color on prints, but with the potential offered by the digital realm, I had not really considered the role of a colorist today until I saw Waves and saw Damien van der Kruysen credited in the opening titles as colorist. Van der Kruysen also worked on this year's The Last Black Man in San Francisco and Uncut Gems. And in all three, his work gave each film a unique visual flair. Kudos to him and to the filmmakers he worked with to put state-of-the-art technology in service of the story and not merely as a gimmick. There are so many other craft categories I'd love to mention, so here are a few. Kudos to Thelma Schoonmaker, Martin Scorsese's veteran editor who continues to display her subtle skills in The Irishman. Then cinematographer Jorg Vidmer gave us images that seemed touched by God in A Hidden Life, while the venerable Roger Deakins brought 1917 to vivid life. Since this is a medium better suited to audio than visual, let me highlight some of the fabulous music that elevated films like us. (laughs) 
Michael Abel's score for Jordan Peele's genre-pushing horror film enhanced the sense of unease at a world that seemed broken, giving us something that sounded familiar and yet entirely creepy. The unease of Midsummer was also intensified by music, this time by Haxon Cloak. Damn, even the name sounds a little creepy. Masori gave The Last Black Man in San Francisco a haunting score that can make my heart swoon with aching sadness as well as hope and joy just by hearing it. One final mention of not just the music, but the entire soundscape of the lighthouse. I'll let director Robert Eggers describe it. When I was shooting the film on Cape Horseshoe, which is a peninsula off the southern tip of Nova Scotia, the sounds and the power of the sea and the wind was so uh, present that, you know, I, I wanted to have a really large sounding movie. That was the only way to do it. So we worked very hard with Damien Volpe, the sound designer, and Mark Corvin, the composer, on, on as you say, uh, blending the, the lines between these two things, where the foghorn would sort of meld with the aleatoric brass section and Willem Dafoe's flatulence. And there was a lot of work to be done to make sure that every object in the house sounded as crusty, dusty, rusty, musty. I hope I didn't already use that string of words in, in, in this interview. But, you know, to make everything sound as broken down as as possible so that when, you know, when you hear all, all the rust and old pipes and horrible sounds of the water pump, that you know that the water that's going to come out of that has got to be the worst tasting water that's ever existed. It's audio you can feel with your ears and almost touch. And one final craft award goes to Chad Stahelski for his action choreography in John Wick 3. He's a stuntman turned director. And not since the Indonesian film The Raid have I felt so exhausted and exhilarated by an action film. John Wick 3 raises the bar on fight choreography by adding canines doing doggy foo, gunfights on horseback, katana-wielding motorcyclists, and more. <laughs> Tahelski's films are as much descendants of Sam Peckinpah, John Woo, and Asian action cinema as they are of silent clowns Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd. Stahelski delivers one of the most gorgeously shot and choreographed action films ever as he elevates Wick's saga to ridiculously epic proportions. Some may be offended by the excess violence of the Wick films, and I get that. We live in a world where we witness real and horrific violence on almost a daily basis. Some look to place blame for this violence on movies. 
But in the case of the Wick films, they feel distinctly removed from the real world and are more like a stuntman's tribute to the best his craft can offer. These films are really at heart about the art and craft of screen stunts in action. All of this for what? Because of a puppy? Wasn't just a puppy. Twenty nineteen was an exciting year for film, and I felt like I barely scratched the surface of what films were available. I hardly saw any documentaries, and not nearly enough foreign films. We're so saturated by content, be it streaming movies, films in theaters, or the excess of streaming shows that eat up dozens of hours to just complete a season, that I felt like I could never catch up. But so much of what I saw this year reinvigorated my love of cinema and my appreciation for audacious talent. When you see hundreds of movies a year, you can get jaded and feel like there's nothing new coming out of Hollywood. But that also means when there is something fresh, it stands out in bold relief and makes you jump up and take notice. I hope this list will inspire you to seek out some of the films you're not familiar with and maybe to travel outside your comfort zone. Since Landmark just did a week of classics that included Sunset Boulevard, I'll go out with this scene of Norma Desmond because my passion for film like hers, is tinged with a little madness and obsession. Till our next film fix, I'm Bapa Commando, your resident cinema junkie. Mr. DeMille, do you mind if I say a few words? Thank you. I just want to tell you all how happy I am to be back in the studio, making a picture again. You don't know how much I've missed all of you, and I promise you I'll never desert you again, because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.